we talk about the Bible has the answer, sometimes we're looking at it that way. We're looking at it, I think, the wrong way. Now, it's important for us to understand what we're talking about here. We're talking about a book that took more than 1,500 years to write in three different languages on three different continents, written by over 40 different people, everybody from fishermen to kings. And yet it is a book that transcends culture, transcends time, and still provides answers that are meaningful 4,000 years after the first words were written. And yet we live in a culture that challenges this. Now, as Calvary Chapel pastors, we go through the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse. But if you walk into this fellowship or one like it, and you already have a preconceived notion that you can't trust the Bible, then who cares if we're going through it chapter by chapter and verse by verse? Because in your mind, you've already presupposed that it's a myth. And even if tonight you're the kind of Christian that goes, no, 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 I believe the Bible is the inspired word of God, there is no doubt when we look at the statistics that the majority of people who call themselves Christians are still being influenced by a culture that says this book can't be trusted. This book can't be trusted or not completely. Or maybe, maybe there are parts of it you can trust, but there are other parts of it we're not so sure about. I mean, those Genesis 1 through 11, you know, we know all the science stuff over here and, and we can't really trust that, but, you know, we can, we can get some good spiritual truths out of it, but we can't, can't take it literally. And the question is, if you can't take Genesis chapter 1 literally, why can you take John chapter 3 literally? I mean, what's the point? And so you see, we, we've, got, we've got a bit of a disconnect between people who say they trust it because statistically speaking, 80% of people who are self-professing believers have never read it. 80%. There are 1,189 chapters in the Bible, in 66 books. And because of that, it's intimidating. People, people are afraid of it. It's too long. It's too lengthy. We have a hard enough time paying attention for 10 minutes between commercial breaks, much less being able to read 1,189 chapters. 80% of people who are self-professing believers have never read it. They've read parts of it, but not the whole thing. I'm going to give you just a quick aside here. If you read the Bible, three chapters in the Old Testament and one chapter in the New Testament every day. That'll take you about 10 to 15 minutes. Not a lot of time out of your life. Three chapters in the Old Testament, one chapter in the New Testament every day. You'll get through the Bible in nine months and two weeks. Less than a year. Now, that means that if you miss a few days here and there, you should be able to do it in one year for less than 15 minutes of your time. How many of you are willing to take that challenge? Three and one. That's all you got to do. Write it down. If you got nothing else out of this message, get that. Read three chapters in the Old Testament, one chapter in the New Testament. You'll get through the Bible in a year. Or you can take one of my Bible classes where I will make you read the entire Bible in 15 weeks. Okay? I'm the professor you don't want to get. Okay? I'm, I'm just that guy you don't want to get because I, I do that to my poor students. Um, although this next class, by the way, if you're interested, um, on Monday, starting 
August 27th, Monday nights, 6 o'clock at 14.6. I will be teaching Introduction to Theology and Bible. It is a college class that I am teaching it on. It'll be on video for Veritas University, but you are welcome to come to that. You don't have to enroll in the university to take the class. So if you're interested, Introduction to Theology, learning on, you know, what is, you know, panentheism and what is, you know, all that sort of thing. It's, it'll be a lot of fun, but if you're interested in that, you can do that. So anyway, <clears throat> getting back to why, why the Bible can be trusted. In 2015, Barna did a poll. He found out that most unchurched people are actually in the same boat as most people who claim to be believers. You see, the majority of people, listen, who do not attend church on a regular basis, two-thirds of them believe that the Bible can't be trusted. And that's the number one reason they don't come here. Number one reason, two-thirds of the people that you meet that are unchurched, they're unconnected to the church, their number one objection is you can't trust the Bible. So when you're talking to your friends, when you're inviting people to come to this church, a church that teaches the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse, no wonder they don't want to come because they don't trust the book. I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to give you a bunch of information right now. If you want to take notes, you're going to be writing furiously, but I, I'm going to give this information to you so that you can answer that objection, so that you can help your friends, your family members, people you want to invite to this church. Hey, you can trust this book because I'm about to show you that the Bible is the single most trustworthy book ever written in any language. Nothing comes close. And we're going to show you from um, history and from statistics and things like this why you can trust the Bible. Now, the Bible itself says this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It connects us, it corrects, I'm sorry, it corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. Now, that's the reason people are going to discount the Bible is because they don't want to be told what is right and what is wrong. People want to decide for themselves what is right and what is wrong, particularly when what is wrong benefits them in some way. They want to be able to justify that, want to be able to rationalize that. I know that because I am a human being and I tend to do that myself because I'm a sinner like the rest of y'all. If it wasn't for the blood of Jesus, I'd be going to hell too. But I'm not because Jesus' blood covers me. I'll tell you about that later. But anyway, getting on from there, inspired by God, the main objection to why people do not trust the Bible is because they don't believe it's inspired by God. They try to equate it and say, well, there's a whole lot of books out there, a lot of spiritual books. There's the Quran, there's the Book of Mormon, there's the Vedic scriptures from India, there's all these other scriptures out there, and they all basically say the same thing. So why is it that we can say the Bible is unique over all these other books? First of all, uh, right off the top of my head, that is a lie, by the way. Most of the other books completely contradict the Bible. They don't necessarily say the same thing. Not at all. They don't teach basically the same truths. Not even a little bit. 
They contradict each other. So they, they're not necessarily going to be telling you the same things. So the first common belief that we have to dispel is that people are afraid that since the Bible, and you probably heard this, since the Bible has been translated so many times, how can you trust that what you have today is what they wrote back then? Because it's been translated so many times. How many of you ever heard that, that particular objection? If you've run into the guys with white shirts and little black nameplates at your door, they will tell you that they trust the Bible only so far as it's been translated correctly. And I love the elders when they show up at my door because I say, great, show me where it's not translated correctly. And they cannot answer. They cannot answer because they don't have any answers. But the, the, what is a translation? Let's talk about what is a translation so we can understand what we're coming to, uh, understand why this is not true. There are three types of translations. When you look at your Bibles today, there are three basic types. The first is called a formal equivalent. Now, a formal equivalent is where we try to translate the Bible from its original language, which is either Hebrew, there's a little bit of Aramaic, or Greek, Koine Greek. We're going to translate from that language directly, word for word, into our language. So what we're going to do when we do that kind of translation is we're going to attempt to find a word in one language that means exactly the same thing as the other language. For example... Um, our language for this creature here, let's go to the next slide, is a cow. But in French, it's une vache. Now, if you say a cow to a French person who doesn't speak any English, they have no idea what you're talking about. Okay, but these two words mean, mean that animal. That is a word-for-word -word formal translation. The King James Version is an example of an attempt to do word-for-word -word translations. The problem with word-for-word -word translations is that, for the most part, languages use figures of speech, idioms. They, will round, they can round things off, round numbers. There are cultural things within a language that don't necessarily come across. And because of that, another form of translation is what we call a functional equivalent. And a functional equivalent is where we're looking for the meaning of a word or a phrase. That is a little bit different. Now, to give you an example of what I'm talking about, if I say in English, this headache is killing me. Now, you, speaking English, understand the concept that what I mean is that this headache is intense pain. That's what you would understand. However, if I translate that word for word into another language, the headache is killing me could mean something rather serious. Now, to give you an example, flipping it back the other direction. If I say in French, I have a headache, I'm going to say, j'ai mal à la tête. Now, mal à la tête means I am bad in the head. If I go word for word. Now, bad in the head means something completely different to you in English. So I can't take j'ai mal à la tête and I can't take it and do a, a word for word because the, it would say something different to you in English 
than we would mean in French. And in Canada, it's even different than that. So, uh, it, you know, because there are differences between uh, the dialects as well. So what we're looking for in a functional equivalent is where we're looking for the meaning. Now, uh, your pastor here and myself, we will often go and tell you that the scripture says X, and then we'll pull out a word. How many of you know, see Brett do this? We'll pull out a word in Greek, and we'll say, well, here's what it says in the Greek dictionary under this word. Why do we do that? It's because that word doesn't necessarily give you all of the nuance if I try a word-for-word translation, so I have to do a formal equivalent. Now, in a formal equivalent, this can work pretty well, but you got to be careful with it. Because the formal equivalent is also based on the translator's understanding of what did that mean. So a good translation that uses a formal, or I'm sorry, a functional equivalent would be your New Living Translation. It's one of the more trustworthy ones. Now a mixture, this is the one that I prefer. It's where we mix it. It's where we try to do word for word wherever it's possible. But when we run into a phrase or we run into a word that isn't giving us the full measure of that meaning, we're going to go look for um, the, the function of it. We're going to go look for, well, it says, so it must, well, I think that means, you know, and we're trying to look at the culture and we're trying to look at it and we're going to mix these two ideas together. A good example of that would be your New King James Version or your New American Standard Bible. Also, the NIV, but I would say the New International Version, only the older 1973 translation of the NIV, the newer translation, particularly the, um, what is the new one called? The New International, what is it called? What is it? Today's NIV, that's, that's what it is. Yeah, I don't, I don't like that version. I don't, I don't, um, I don't uh, recommend it. I think it's, I think it's gotten too politically correct. So when you're answering the question though, okay, well, if we've got formal equivalents and we've got functional equivalents and we've got um, a mixture of the two, um, how can I know that, how can I know that the translation that I'm getting is accurate? Why are there so many translations? Well, the answer is, there are so many translations because there's so many needs. I mean, if you're, if you're a scholar, you're going to be studying a, a much more detailed version. You know, most of us in, uh, in the scholarly world are going to be using the New American Standard is pretty much what we use because it's, it's really tight. But it's also really boring. If, if you want to get something that gets the flavor of what's coming across, use the New Living Translation. That will give you more of the, uh, the sense and the essence of what's being translated. But if you're you know, more scholarly, you're going to go with something uh, like the New American Standard. So there's simply different versions. But some folks have a problem with this because they're afraid that it's like the telephone game. That's what they're fearful of. Okay, so the telephone game, if you remember it, if I whisper a message in his ear, and he is supposed to pass the message along to the next person. So he whispers in her ear, she whispers in her ear, and here and here, and it goes down the line. And the game is, by the time we get to the last person, we, we see how messed up the message got because we all know that he's a jerk. 
right? I mean, because I gave him the message properly, but he's a jerk. So he passed it on her, but she doesn't know. So she passes it on faithfully because we know she's a sweetheart. She would never do such a thing. So she's going to pass it on here, but she's half deaf. So she didn't quite get the message, right? But she did the best she could. She passed it on to this person who only speaks Hungarian in a dialect that's spoken in two villages in the world. But she does her best and she passes it on. And you see the problem. By the time we get to the end, it's so garbled. That's what people are afraid of. And they think that since the Bible is such an old book and since it's been you know, passed along so many times like that. And since we're translating from Hebrew into all of these different languages, I mean, most of our English translations have come from, well, it went from Hebrew, then it went to Latin, and then it went from Latin back into Greek, and then it went over here. I mean, those were the scholarly languages at the time, and then we translated it into, you know, 16th century Queen's English, and now we're going to be translating. I mean, they're, they're worried that it's the telephone game, and they assume that you can't trust the translations that you have today. But when you look at the telephone game, the way to check the telephone game, there are several ways. First of all, Let's redo how we're changing, how we're doing the telephone game. Let's assume that the people that are passing it along are not jerks. They are people of the highest integrity and the highest character and motivation. Well, that would change things, wouldn't it? Now, the second thing we could do is we could go, well, if I check the message at the end of the line... With the original message, I can see, I can compare these two, and I can, I can go, well, I can see how it's changed. How do we check with the original message? Well, that's what we're going to talk about. The solution is to check the source material, and you can do this in four ways. Now, I'm going to only show you two of those ways tonight, but you can remember it by the word cool. And the reason I put cool is because it's so cool that the Bible can be trusted. The CO is for copies and the OL is for old. How old are those copies? We're going to look at that. Because in our telephone game, when it comes to the Bible, it's not one person that gave a message to one person. What we have is we have a whole bunch of copies that were given to the next generation who made a whole bunch of copies of those copies and they were passed along. So we have a lot of manuscripts that we're going to go check. Now, what's important about checking manuscripts? If I give you a message, if I write out the words, you have won $1 million. But the why in the word you is missing could you still figure out the message? Well, sure, because you've got enough of the rest of the information that if you're missing a letter, you, you can figure it out. It's even better if I say, you have won $1 million, but I say it 500 times. And each one of the sentences has a change in a letter. Could you still figure it out? 
Yeah, because you can compare all of the sentences together and you could go, well, I, you know, well, this one's missing the Y and this one over here is missing an A, but I can see that this one isn't. And you can compare these things together and you can come up with a very accurate rendition of what the original message, you have won $1 million, is. This is called the science of textual criticism. What we're going to do is we're going to go look back in time and we're going to see how many copies that we have, how many old copies do we have? The oldest ones we have, we're going to take those copies, we're going to compare them together and we're going to come up with what is most likely to the original. Does that make sense? So the more copies you have, obviously, the better. And the older the copies that you have, well, the, that's even better than that. But we also have to take into consideration how good are the scribes who wrote down those copies? What kind of people were they? What was their character? Let me give you an example. Tradition tells us that the rabbis who wrote the copies that we call the Septuagint. The Septuagint was started about 250 years before Jesus was born and was completed right around 150. The Septuagint is a translation of the ancient Hebrew Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. We have a lot of information about the Septuagint that tells us a lot about the credibility of that document. What were the scholars like? Well, when you read the Talmud, when you read the, the descriptions of it, these people, when they would copy out a, a, one copy to the next, they would literally count the number of letters in one line. The number of letters had to match. If it didn't match, you had to hold, throw the whole scroll away and start again. They had to match in terms of letter to letter. Also, every time they came to the name of God, whether it was Yahweh or Adonai or Elohim, whatever it was, they would write down the name of God and then throw away the pen. Because the name of God is so holy, that pen could never be used again because it had been used to write the name of God. They would get a whole new pen and start the next letter. So they would check the number of letters. They would stop at the name of God every single time. They were so precise. They were so precise that in more than a thousand years, the decay rate was by far less than one half of 1%. That's what we've discovered. The decay rate was less than one half of 1%. Now, I'm going to get into the details of that here so that you can see what I'm talking about by, comparison, by comparing it to some other examples. We call this the copies test. It's also called the bibliographic test. If we want to test an ancient document to find out if what we have is what they wrote, we're going to use the bibliographic test. So we're going to compare the oldest copies that we have we're going to, uh, the more that we have, the better. And that's going to give us a way of, of seeing what is our percentage accuracy rate. Now, the truth is, most ancient documents, anything older than 1000 AD is considered ancient. Anything older than 1000 AD is considered ancient. Okay, so... Most of these did not survive well. Why? Because they were written on perishable materials. 
you write on papyrus, it's going to degrade, particularly in wet environments like middle, middle, medieval Europe. Okay, you're going to have um, degradation of lambskin. They would also write on lambskin. This would disintegrate over time. Now, obviously, if I write in stone, that's going to last a long time, but stone is bulky and heavy, so they're rare to find stone tablets. The same with clay tablets. It's rare to find them. So most ancient documents did not survive very well. Let me give you some examples. We'll start with Plato. Now, if you go to college, you're going to have to study Plato. The reason you have to study Plato is Plato wrote a book called The Republic in which he introduced a historical character called Socrates. Actually, Socrates, but Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure said it was Socrates, so I always take it. So, But anyway, he introduced Socrates and Plato. Now, let's talk about Plato for a second. Plato, there are seven copies of the Republic. The oldest copies, there's only seven of them. They, uh, they date, the original copy was written in 400 BC. The oldest copy we have is 1,300 years older than that. Now, our, that's the gap. Does that make sense? So, Plato wrote this about 400 BC. The oldest copy we have come from, comes from about 900 AD. So that's the oldest copy we have, and we only have seven of those. Only seven. So I can take those oldest copies, just seven, and I can compare them together and figure out what was the text of the Republic. How many of you know that there's not a professor on the planet that is going to say that Plato was not a real individual? They don't doubt him at all. They don't doubt the authenticity of the Republic. In fact, most philosophers will tell you that all of philosophy is simply a commentary on Plato. He's that important. Nobody doubts him. But there is a 1,300-year gap between when he wrote the Republic and the oldest copies that we have, and we only have seven of those. Does that make sense? But nobody doubts him. Let's go to another example. Herodotus. Herodotus was a historian. He wrote a history. There are eight copies that we have, the oldest of which is 1,350 years after it was written in 480 BC. That's the gap. The gap between what we have, oldest copies, and when it was written is 1,350 years. We only have eight of those. Now let's talk about Julius Caesar. We all know Julius Caesar because we eat his salads. Okay, now Caesar, for those of you that missed it, was not just a great chef. He was a king. He was an emperor, and he fought a uh, number of battles in Gaul, which is uh, today is France. He wrote a book called The Gallic Wars. He wrote this book in 44 BC. The oldest copy we have is a 900-year gap between 44 BC when it was written and the oldest copy we have. We have 10 of those. Does that make sense? Are you kind of seeing the picture? When we look at ancient copies, this is the picture. Uh, the Annals by Tacitus. He was a Roman historian. We have 20 copies of his book. The oldest is 1,000 years after Tacitus wrote the book in 100 AD. In 100 AD. Does that make sense? That's, what we're, that, that's actually the picture of all ancient documents we have. You can see the same pattern in China. You can see the same pattern in India. When we look at ancient copies of these books, we have very, very, very few of the old copies, and the gap is usually pretty big. In fact, the best, 
The best ancient document we have outside of the Bible is the Iliad by Homer. Now, Homer wrote the Iliad a long time ago, okay? But we have 643 copies of this. The oldest is still, there's a 400-year gap between the oldest of those 643 documents and Homer's original. Do you see that? That is what we see when we look at ancient documents. But what about the Bible? Well, the Bible's got a whole different story here. In fact, if you were to take every single example of an ancient document, okay, that means every single example prior to 1000 AD. Are you with me? Every single one. Add them all together and multiply times 10, you don't come close to the Bible. In fact, the New Testament has 24,970 ancient copies of the New Testament or portions of it. Let me say that again, just to get the number in your head. 24,970. Is that a little bit better than Plato? Herodotus? Tacitus? Homer? Yeah, it's a little bit better. 24,970. The majority, now what's the gap? <laughs> well, the gap is somewhere between 30 and 90 years. That's the gap between the oldest copies or portions that we have and when the originals were composed. So you have 24,970 copies to look at, and these copies date to within 30 to 90 years of when the originals were written. Well, what does that mean? Well, scholars tell us that legend and myth takes at least 200 years to develop. So if you have 24,970 copies of the New Testament and they date to within 30 or 90 years of when the originals were written, there's not enough time for legend to develop. What do I mean by that? Well, if I start a cult tomorrow because I'm getting tired of the low pay and all this sort of thing, and I, you know, I want the girls and the gold watch and everything, I start a cult. How many of you know that's how you get the girl, the gold watch and everything? Start a cult. Get, get your own airplane, gold-plated toilets, everything you want. Okay, and I start my cult, and my cult says that Ronald Reagan was actually God in the flesh, and he rose from the dead. Okay, and I'm going to start this, and I'm an eyewitness of this. How many of you were there when Ronald Reagan was alive? How many of you are witnesses to the presidency and the life of Ronald Reagan? You could all dispute my claim. And especially if I'm starting this organization, making this claim, and it's threatening the very government of the United States because I have so many followers. How many of you that were witnesses to the real Ronald Reagan would have something to say about that? So let's take it back in time. You have a new organization that started saying that this man, Yeshua, he actually rose from the dead. People are giving their lives for this. And they're writing down what they believe about these events within the lifetime of people who saw and heard Yeshua in Palestine at that time. Does that make sense? They were there. There is not one piece of ancient literature anywhere that's disputing this. We have 24,970 copies of that story. The gap is not enough for legend or myth to develop. It's simply not. 
Now, when we look at the, the Old Testament, we have a similar thing. We have 14,000 copies of various parts and collections of the Old Testament. Some of these date to nearly 100 years before Jesus was born. 14,000 copies of various parts and collections of the Old Testament. Again, more than double, way more than double of all other ancient literature combined. And that's for the Old Testament. You add these two things together, 24,970 plus 14,000, the Bible has more testament that what you have is what they wrote than for any other book ever written in any language anywhere, period. Nothing comes close. Not, nothing comes close. Now, we can compare those documents, and we have. When we compare them in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, when we compare them, we can tell you that the Bible is accurate to a 99.8% degree. In fact, there are only 400 words in 1,189 chapters that are in doubt. Only 400 words, and not a single one of those words, not even one, has any effect on the actual meaning of any major doctrine in the Bible. Not even one. Now, that is powerful, but it gets better. <laughs> Don't you love it? Don't you love God who did all this? He made sure his, his fingerprints were all over this. I mean, but it gets better. Let's take all 24,970 copies, all 14,000 copies of the Old Testament, burn them all. Burn it all. You will find in ancient letters, ancient diaries, ancient news reports, even receipts that we have found, you will find quotes of the Bible. See, so-and-so is writing his kid, and he writes a letter, and it says, don't forget John 3.16, and he quotes it. Or you have the, the early church fathers quoting the Bible. We have 30,000 quotes from ancient people in letters, diaries, and other sources. 30,000. Actually, it's more than 30,000. In fact, you can rebuild the entire New Testament, all but 11 verses, just from those quotes. What does that mean? It means, and here's something you can remember, the words of the Bible, they have been copied they have been translated accurately over the centuries better than any other writing ever written in any language to a 99.8% accuracy rate. Now, that doesn't mean you have to believe what it says. But the scholarship says that what you read, it is what they wrote. Now, again, you don't, that doesn't mean that what they wrote, you have to believe but you'd be a fool not to. Why? Because the same God who created DNA, who had that kind of attention to detail. Now, let's think about this for a second. DNA is powerful stuff, and I've spoken about this to you guys before. DNA, when you look at DNA, I mean, for those of you that missed it, DNA is the stuff you leave at the crime scene. That's why we know you did it. Okay, because your DNA is 100% is you. But your DNA is made of nucleotides and amino acids and sugars and phosphates and a number of other things. But what's important is the nucleotides 
and the amino acids. Now, the nucleotides all twist to the right. The amino acids all twist to the left. Now, what's important about that, and when we talk about attention to detail, what's important about that is in nature, both nucleotides and amino acids exist in a 50-50 ratio. It's like flipping a coin. So what are the chances that your DNA, there's no, there's no affinity what I mean by affinity is, is that the amino acids, it's like taking letters, magnetic letters, and throwing them at your refrigerator. They're just going to stick. There's no reason for them to stick any way. They just stick. And amino acids are like that. So left-handed, right-handed, they exist like this in nature, but only left-handed will attach into your DNA when both left and right could so what are the odds that a DNA could come about that is what we call optically pure, all left-handed? We're talking about 3 billion of these amino acids that are unique to you. The chances that that could happen by pure chemistry is one chance in 10 to the 40,000th power. That's a one with 40,000 zeros behind it. Now, to give you an idea of how big this number is, if you were to count like this, one, two, three, four, just start counting. And as we're starting to count like this, we just keep counting every second of every minute of every hour of every day. And we never stop, just, you know, 24-7, we just keep going. If you count like this at about this tempo, one count per second, by the time you got to 30 billion Years, that's 1,000 millions. So 30 billion years, you'd get to the 10 to the 18th. <laughs> I think we're a little far from halfway. But do you see? In other words, anything 10 to the 50th and greater is impossible. So when we have chances of one, one chance in 10 to the 40,000th power that something could come to pass, it's impossible. It had to be built. It had to be designed, and it had to be designed by someone with incredible attention to detail. So when I look at that, when I look at that signature, I go, if that creator is the one that revealed himself to anyone, anywhere, he would do it with the same precision, would he not? He wouldn't be sloppy about it. So when I look at 24,970 copies of the New Testament, 14,000 copies of the Old Testament, 30,000 plus quotes, when I look at a 99.8% accuracy rate, I'm thinking DNA, dude. That is God. That makes me feel real good about it. Should make you feel real good about it too. Now, it gets better. Oh yeah, it gets better. Check it out. 2 Timothy 1.20. Now, it says in 2 Timothy, or I'm sorry, 2 Peter 1.20, my bad. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, these prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God, from the creator, from the one that built DNA, from the one that put his fingerprints on history. Now, when we talk about prophecy, we're talking about this word. In, in Greek, he's using the word prophetae. Prophetae means a discourse emanating from divine inspiration, declaring the purposes of God, reproving, admonishing, comforting, or revealing. Here it is, especially by foretelling future events. Now, the Bible is loaded with 
prophecy. And that prophecy is intended to demonstrate that only the real God could pull this off. For example, the book of Isaiah chapter 41 verse 21 says this. God himself is challenging people. He's challenging you and I. He's challenging us all the way down to the 21st century. He's saying, present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Go ahead and prove your God is what he's saying. You want to prove your God? Show us what's going to happen. You know, let them show the former things what they were that we may consider them and know the latter end of them or, to, or declare to us things to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter that we may know you are gods. The true God challenges the false gods. He challenges human intellect. And he says, all right, tried this on for size. See, Job had the same problem when he ran into God. He wanted to complain. God said, where were you when I laid, you know, I laid out a plumb line across the sky? Where were you when I did this? Surely you know. Job got the message. Whoa, okay, I get it. And God's doing the same thing. He said, if you think you're so smart, tell me what's going to happen next week. Tell me what's going to happen next year. I'll do better than that. I'll tell you what's going to happen 3,000 years from now. And I'll put it in the Bible in such a way that you can't miss it. See, that's what the true God does. Now, let me tell you about the false gods. The very best of today's fortune tellers and psychics, there was a study done on them. We're talking Gene Dixon, you heard of them? Edward Casey? Okay, you know, uh, the, the astrologers, the very best in the world. And they found out that their accuracy rate is 8%. That's their accuracy rate. That means that they're going to get eight out of every 100 predictions they make will actually be true. Guys, you could get better odds flipping a coin. That's 50-50. You want to be a psychic? You can make money. Just get a quarter. You're doing good. If you package it right, <laughs> you're winning. Okay? Um, until you go to hell. But still, the, the thing is, you know, I, I'm just saying, you know, because... I'm sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 20 says, you're going to play prophet? You've got to have a 100% accuracy rate because only God can pull that off. Deuteronomy 18, 20 makes it clear that if you claim to be a prophet and you're anything less than 100%, the penalty is death. God doesn't mess around with this stuff. See, unlike any other book, the Quran does not make predictive prophecy at all. I've read it. Okay, neither does the Book of Mormon. Okay, neither do the Vedic scriptures. Neither do the Confucian Analects. Unfortunately, I've had to read some of those too. And the truth is, I've read all, all, all of this stuff. They don't make predictive prophecy. They just don't do it. The Bible's loaded with it. And I'm here to tell you, the Bible has never once been shown to be an error. Not even one time. Because God is 100%. Let me give you just some examples to blow your mind. Amen. We're going to talk about that Isaiah. I quoted Isaiah 41, 21, but I want to tell you a little bit about the book of Isaiah. You know, up until the 1940s, the oldest copy of the book of Isaiah we had came from 900 AD. That was the oldest copy we had, and it happened to be in Latin and that, of the book of Isaiah. But then we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found a copy of the book 
of Isaiah. And this book dates to 100 B.C., before Jesus. We're talking about a thousand-year gap. Wow, if there's ever a chance to see if what we have is what they wrote, here it is. So they did a little comparison. And you know what they found? They found there's only three letters that are different. Three. And all three of those letters were just spelling differences. It's like spelling. Now, I know you're Americans. You spell the word honor, H-O-N-O-R, but that's incorrect. It's H-O-N-O-U-R, and everybody that's Canadian knows this. Okay. <laughs> now, I know that you think you're right, but you're Americans, therefore you're wrong. Okay, but <clears throat> does honor or honor, does it change the meaning in any way, shape, or form, whether you use a U correctly or not? It doesn't make any difference. So those letter changes are only about three. And uh, so we're talking a very, very small amount. Okay, let's talk about Isaiah for a second. Now, he foretold something. I want you to look at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11. It says this. It says, it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time time to recover the remnant of his people who are left. Now, this is a prophecy that was written somewhere around 700 BC. That's a long time ago. Okay, right in that neighborhood, about 700 BC. Now, when the prophet Isaiah wrote this, that was 150 years, roughly, before the first deportation. Now, you've all heard of that because if you're a Christian, you've been around a while, you know that by right around 585 BC to 606 BC, this guy, Nebuchadnezzar, he got mad at the Jewish people. And what did he do? He, he destroyed their city, destroyed the temple, Solomon's temple, and carted them all off to Babylon. That was the first deportation. Therefore, the first return, okay, happened later in about 588 BC, somewhere between 588, uh, right around 588. The, the people that were deported were sent back under um, Cyrus, right? They were sent back to the land of Israel. And we, we read about it in Nehemiah and, and places like that. Okay, that was the first deportation, the first return. But it says, go back to the verse, it says, in that day, the Lord shall set his hand again the second time. The second time. What does he mean? He means there's going to be a whole second deportation and a whole second return. Now, he predicted this in 700 BC. So remember, the first deportation was Nebuchadnezzar, right? The first return was under Cyrus. The second happened under this guy, Titus the Roman. Titus the Roman came in in 70 AD. Jesus predicted this would happen, and what did he do? He obliterated the city. He destroyed the temple. Jesus said there won't be one stone left on another here, and that's exactly what happened. I mean, Jesus' own prophecy came to pass because there was gold on the temple walls, and so when it melted in the fire... Well, the Romans want to get the gold, so there's literally not one stone left on another because they pried everything up in order to get a little piece of that gold, and they kept going. There's not even one stone left on another, exactly as Jesus said, but that's another prophecy. But anyway, they destroyed the temple, and the Jewish people were scattered to the ends of the earth. 
But unlike any other people group in all of human history, they maintained their culture and their language for 1,800 years. No matter where they were sent, they maintained it. Did you know that the Hebrew that is spoken today in Israel, other than modern words that they had to make up, like helicopter or electric lights, they had to make up those words. But other than those kind of words, the Hebrew they speak today is the Hebrew David spoke. That's pretty cool. A language that had been dead all that time was completely revived. A people that had been obliterated. I mean, you don't hear any people today talking about being, you know, Amalekites. But people still identify as Jews, Israelites. And 1,878 years after Titus the Roman, on May the 14th, 1948, the Jewish nation was recognized as a modern nation. This prophecy written in 700 BC was fulfilled to the letter. Only God can pull that off. Oh, there, guys, I, I don't mean to be mean. I don't have time. I'm, I'm running out. But the truth is, I teach a 13-week class just on the prophecies because there's so many of them. We just start going through them. Well, here's one about Tyre. Here's one about Sidon. Here's one about Petra. Here's one. And we just start going through them. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of these prophecies. There's no other book on earth like your Bible. No other book has predictive prophecy. We can prove, remember I told you the Septuagint was started 250 BC and completed in 150 BC. We have uh, an example of Septuagint writing when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. 100, uh, basically a 100 BC copy of the book of Isaiah. It's a Septuagint copy. When we look at that, we can prove beyond any doubt that these scriptures were written and these prophecies were made before the events that took place. Because a lot of people will try to discount prophecies. Oh, well, they wrote it later. They wrote it afterwards. Nonsense. The evidence does not support that. Dozens and dozens and dozens of examples of prophecy. So I'm going to give you a quote and we'll close. This quote comes from one of my professors, Dr. Geisler, and his friend, Dr. Nix. Other books claim divine inspiration, such as the Quran, the Book of Mormon, and parts of the Veda. But none of these books contain predictive prophecy. And as a result, fulfilled prophecy is a strong indication of the unique divine authority of the Bible. And I think that's an understatement. You have a Bible that has never been conclusively shown to be in error in terms of history. You have a Bible that has never been shown to be in error in terms of its predictive prophecy. You have a Bible that is 99.8% accurate to what the original authors wrote. You have a Bible that has predictive prophecy that you cannot find in any other writing, in any language, anywhere, at any time. You can Trust it. So I'll leave you with this. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. For the word of God is alive. It's powerful. Sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword.
sharper. It cuts between the soul and the spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Nothing. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. I'll tell you what, why don't we pray about that? Father, we come before you in the name of Yeshua, and we worship you. Why? Because you're worthy. You are worthy of our absolute devotion. You are worthy of our total commitment. You are worthy of every thought that we make, every word that comes out of our mouth, every action, every behavior. You are worthy of our whole self. You are worthy of more than just a song we might sing. And you have proven yourself to us with science and history and archaeology and ancient copies and predictive prophecy. You have demonstrated that you care all the way down to an amino acid to let us know that you exist. We can believe in you. We can trust you. And your revelation with a 99.8% accuracy rate tells us that you so loved the world and sinners like me that you gave your only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. You swore by yourself that your word is true and you cannot lie that if we put our trust in you, no matter what we face in this life, and we're going to face hard times because there's a devil and he doesn't like us. We're going to face sickness and death because of the sins of our fathers and our own. But you swore that if we put our trust in you, that when we step out of this body, we're going to step into eternal life and never look back. You are worthy, and we worship you. Lord, let us take this information and other information like it, lodge it in our heart so that we can feel that assurance. Help us to remember it so that we can share it with those who are skeptics because two-thirds of our friends and our neighbors won't even come to this church because they feel like they can't trust this book, but we just found out that we can. Help us to take this information and spread it far and wide that you might be glorified. This, Father, is what we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, thanks for letting me be here. I appreciate it.